for this Enjoy from here. Time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, mobile phones off, please. Everybody's been very good this year, including me, about keeping their mobile phones off. Um, it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce, although he needs no introduction, um, Ian McEwan, with whom naturally I've often been confused because of our names, um, although not as often as Ian Banks. Uh, and I'm delighted that today's event is being supported, um, sponsored by Hawthornden Literary Retreat, uh, which is based at Hawthornden Castle, just south of Edinburgh. Uh, and I owe a personal debt, because as a, a young man who'd only just been published, um, living in London, I was able to scurry back to Hawthornden for four or five weeks to finish a novel of mine called Watchmen. Um, and you had dinner there last night. Did I you get literary I, resonances? I saw your name on the door, painted on the door. Drew Hines <laughs> kindly showed us around this beautiful gothic place, and there was your name, shining at the top of the list. <laughs> um, I was a very early person who went there. Yeah. Uh, um, is it a thing you've ever done? Have you ever been on a literary retreat? I've never been on a literary retreat. Uh, I think I'm coming round to the idea, especially after seeing Hawthornden. Um, very nice routine. Not allowed, no one is allowed to speak until 6.30 in the evening. Uh, no internet. Mm -hmm. uh, no newspapers when I was no there. No newspapers, no machines that would bother anyone else. It sounds to me um, perfect. Yeah. Uh, apparently some writers revolt and have to leave. They there, was, to there was one writer who went AWOL when I was there for several days. Um, I'm not going to mention who it was. Um, but it didn't, it didn't impinge on the writing of his book, Janine 1982. Um, <laughs> um, well, his name is on the door. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you've never been, but you, you were, I mean, let's get this out of the way quite early on. I mean, you've never been in a literary retreat, but famously you were the, the first um, student to take advantage of the University of East Anglia's creative writing uh, faculty. That's correct. I was its first and then I was its only student. Um, there was, it was basically an MA in comparative literature. And Malcolm Bradbury and Angus Wilson were there. Uh, those of you who know that, uh, Malcolm's novel, The History Man, will know that Howard Kirk, the hero of that, bore some resemblance to, to Malcolm, in that Malcolm in those days was a media don, um, always on television, always rushing off to the States. And in the whole year I was there, and this is the first time I've said this in public, it's, it's time it was said, I saw him on three occasions for about a quarter of an hour. Um, <laughs> And he gave me a great deal of encouragement <laughs> in that time. Uh, and that's, I think that's an ideal kind of creative writing course. He gave me a few reading lists, put me in the way of some good books, and every now and then, three times, said, keep going. But would you then, I mean, because of, of, of that, would you be a supporter of, of creative writing courses in general? Because I'm, I'm never very sure if you can actually teach creative writing. No. In some ways, I, the, I, the idea of teaching it is anathema to the very act. I think I've had a little experience in American universities. What you can do is, is go along and talk about what people should be reading. And I, I think that's a, a good thing to be doing. Uh, I did teach for a whole semester at the Iowa Writers Workshop, quite a famous one. Every student who arrived good left good. I mean, 
in other words, there, there were a couple of well-known, I mean, they became well-known. Jane Ann Phillips was one of my students, but I could claim no credit. I mean, she arrived already, I mean, she was on top of her game already. Mm. Um, basically, I did what was done to me. I said, have you read you know, the following books? And let's talk about them. Uh, because I think reading is part, is, is the essential bit of training for a writer. Mm. Um, now, during that time, you were uh, at East Anglia, you were writing the stories which would eventually go into First Love, Last Rites. That's right. And this was the first book of yours I ever came across uh, when I, I was a, a teenager and I was watching a books program on TV called Something Like Paperback Writer. That was the theme music. Yep. And it was hosted by Melvin Bragg. That's right. And I would write down everything Melvin said because I was very interested in books and I was interested mm. in becoming a writer. Um, and of course, the, your first book of short stories, when it was talked about in that program, appealed immensely to me, um, dealing as it did with the dark side of life and lots and lots of sex. Yeah. Um, but I remember traipsing down to Kirkcaldy and, and buying it and almost having it in a brown paper bag because there was a naked girl on the sleeve, on the, on the front jacket, yeah. and um, taking it back and reading it in my bedroom illicitly without my parents knowing about it. And the first story, homemade, opens with a 14 or 15-year-old boy seducing his 11-year-old sister. Mm. You must have known that was going to cause a little bit of fuss. <laughs> well, it didn't at first. Um, when I wrote that story and handed it around, in fact, uh, gave it to Malcolm Bradbury, uh, and about four months later got a nice typed letter from him saying, uh, you know, keep going. <laughs> uh, it's only when it appeared in book form that I'd realized what I'd done, mm. I committed this terrible deed. Um, because all those stories were published in literary magazines. And, and that was, I mean, that's the real thrill, I think, of starting the beginning of a career. Uh, the note from the Transatlantic Review that, uh, yes, they would like to publish your story, or the note from you know, the Paris Review, or wherever you're. That small community of literary writing is, is thrilling, I think, to a, a writer in his or her 20s. When it was published uh, as First Love, Last Rites, uh, then, uh, in the small way of, of literary fiction publishing in the 70s, very different from now, it was still a, uh, it was a cottage industry, comparatively. Yeah. Uh, I, I realized that I had done something rather strange and brutal or nasty or uh, psychopathic, and the words rolled out. Uh, it became a favorite, um, I was a favorite provider of newspaper copy because summarizing the stories. You could see that the writers loved saying, and uh, made love to his sister, uh, roasted a cat, you know, all the ter terrible things that happened. They loved typing it up. And, uh, and so I then became, you know, Ian Macabre. Uh, <laughs> every journalist writing about me cracked that joke as if for the first time. Hmm. Uh, and my heart would sink. Um, but yes, it, it, it did cause some shock. And that's no bad thing. And probably not too many letters from the BBC saying how delighted they would be to take one of your stories for their morning story slot, I wouldn't have thought, on well, Radio 4. Well, one of the stories was turned into uh, a TV play with Mike Newell. Mm. Um, it caused uh, a bit of a scandal because it got, it got cancelled at the last moment. The BBC cancelled it? Yeah. Mm. Uh, largely because there was a, uh, a penis in a bottle um, <laughs> of record length. And uh, a young woman, uh, in great irritation with her husband, throws it against a wall. And it uh, slides down the wall. And 
in the way of making film, there were six of these um, prosthetic mm -hmm. things in I'm jars. glad you said prosthetic. Good. Yes. Let's and um, they all vanished. I didn't get one. I was very upset. <laughs> um, how did you feel about that, actually? I mean, because I, I, mean, I remember the, 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 the outcry about that at the time. Um, well, it wasn't an outcry, but there was this thing about sense. Was it censorship? Yeah. Um, it, probably these days it would pass without a blinking of an eye on the BBC. Well, it was finally, it was shown with Ewan McGregor. And uh, I don't think anyone even no. noticed it was on. No. I mean, uh, well, no, they would notice. I mean, did you um, McGregor manage to get through the whole TV show without taking his clothes off? Uh, I don't know what happened to his penis. No. But um, I do remember The Sun had a headline. It was the front page, and it said, Bee bans too sexy play. <laughs> um, <laughs> Still got that up on your wall, I would guess. And a very nice, retiring, shy uh, producer um, was called Sex Boss. Uh, Sex Boss on Carpet, it said. Uh, <laughs> That was, a, that was a gift yeah. from above. Such, such is British journalism. That was a, a yeah. gift from above. Yeah. Um, you come from, a, from a, an armed forces background, and I wondered if that was of necessity peripatetic, if it was a wandering background, yeah. um, and how that might tie into your early adventures, buying a bus in Amsterdam and trekking off to Afghanistan. Yes, well, I grew up in, well, born near Aldershot, that Victorian garrison town. Uh, my father, who was originally in the um, HLI, the Highland Light Infantry, uh, grew up in Govan, Glasgow. But then he became a regular soldier after the war, uh, commissioned in the early 50s when I was about three years old. And from then on, we were in the Far East and most memorably for me, North Africa. I've always had this taste for Mediterranean landscape as a result of uh, six, almost seven years in, in Tripoli, Libya. Uh, and then more boringly, North Germany, uh, by which time I was at a uh, boarding school in England. And so, yeah, I had the taste for travel. Um, a couple of American friends took off, uh, bought a bus in Amsterdam, drove it to Munich, then to Istanbul, and then through uh, a journey that would be very difficult to make now, uh, through Iran, um, Afghanistan, and, and, and into Pakistan. Mm. Uh, and was this it, the hippie trail? Was it the... It was more or less the hippie trail. Um, Patchouli yeah. oil and um, yeah. strings of beads around you. Yeah, neck. that was the least of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm trying. Um, to, there will be yeah. there will be journalists in the audience. I'm yeah. trying not to go into too much yes. detail. Now yeah. we've had the entire labour front we, bench tell us that they smoked cannabis. Uh, we so. <laughs> we drank a lot of patchouli oil. Um, but did that, you know, it's interesting that I can't really see those early experiences in your work. Am I just not looking deeply enough or just didn't it affect you as a, as a writer? You know, this idea that the writer starts mm. with material from their mm. own life. I don't see that with your first book of short stories. No, it, um, I'd already written about five or six of them by the time I, I'd written most of that book by the time I went on that journey. Uh, no, it, it didn't make uh, the kind of impression. A lot of the time I was there and I, we were on the road for about nine months, uh, when it wasn't my turn to drive, I, I was sitting at the back of this very uncomfortable van being tossed around because there were no proper roads. I was just dreaming of getting back under grey skies uh, and a, an empty whitewashed room was my fantasy and a, and a bare desk and a sheet of A4 on it. Uh, I was longing to, to get going, actually. I thought, but I was too tied in. I, all my money of the trip, which was only about 150 pounds, was sunk with my two friends, and there was no extricating myself. So after a while, I be did become quite bored by mm. um, 
being stoned all the time and um, <laughs> endless uh, journeys across the desert. I love, though, what I love are the mosques of Herat and, um, and Kabul and, and, of course, Istanbul. Mm. Uh, the actual, when we arrived in places, I like that. But no, it, I, I've never really written. I've got, a, I've got a diary I've kept at the time, and I should look at it again. I haven't looked at it for years. Um, we had a lot of fun, but yeah. it wasn't, a, wasn't the kind of fun that I needed. Um, I wanted something dark, of course. Sure. Uh, it was too much fun. That, that was, uh, you were happy, you were happy was, just to... I was to way too happy. Happy to sit and dream of um, strange things happening by canal banks. Yeah. Um, you've said of, because I, I mean, I, I hate to start being reductive, but, you've, but you know, you can split your work into the sort of very early, the short stories, and maybe your first novel, Cement Garden, is in with those stories. Yes. It's been part of a period in your, like, your writing life. Yes. And you have said that you felt with the Cement Garden that you did write yourself into a corner. Yes. Because you were being seen as being in Macabre, perhaps. Partly that. Actually, it was the, the, the following novel, too, The Comfort of Strangers, another yeah. short novel. By the time I'd finished that, also very dark. I very claustrophobic it, relationship. Yep. Claustrophobic, um, fairly linear, moving from A to B. I mean, both those novels owe a lot of their structure to the short story. Uh, I don't think one of them was above 45,000 words. I, I was a slow starter with the novel, actually. Um, but I felt that I had written myself into a corner. I'd fallen victim to a kind of aesthetic maybe you, I think you would have escaped this, where a, a, a kind of existential notion of fiction in which I thought that it was no longer possible in a paragraph to summarize what any character was thinking. I thought all you could do is deal with surfaces and detail and not actually allow the reader uh, access to the current and flow of emotion and thought and impulse and so on. Uh, and of course, this was very limiting, uh, both, I think, for the reader as well as uh, writer. And so I took a pause after that novel. I didn't publish a novel for six or seven years. And I wrote screenplays instead. I worked with Richard Eyre, wrote The Imitation Game. Um, I wrote an anti-nuclear oratorio with Michael Barclay. Uh, and then I wrote a, a movie called The Plowman's Lunch, also with Richard Eyre. And moving out into dialogue and a degree of social engagement to loosen things up for me. And then I was able to come back uh, and, and start again, as it were, yeah. uh, with a novel called The Child in Time, a completely different kind of fiction for me and a real, and a real sort of reinvention of myself. And that was a gap, I think, um, 81 to 87 mm -hmm. in terms of publication. I mean, it was, it was a move really into, into political writing. Yes, and... Um, or political engagement, I suppose. Suddenly I felt it was no longer shaming to say um, what year it was, or what the town was, or, or what a character thought. Uh, curious how I picked up, a, I think, the tail end of, of, of some kind of European existential writing. I think Peter Hanker um, was a great hero of mine at the time. read all, all those novels of his, you know, with their lovely titles. The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick was... I think it's a superb title, um, The Ride Across Lake Constance. Uh, but he, he, I think, was a past master of that form of existential mm -hmm. writing. And, and, and yet, for me, I think it was too limiting. I mean, were, you, were, you growing, were, you, were you growing worried about the way the world was going? Because a lot of the Cold War impinges on your books, a lot of the mm -hmm. tensions between... Um, I mean, in, in Child and Time, there's this t 
overarching tension between America and Russia. Mm. Um, in the Plowman's Lunch, it's post Falklands, just slightly post Falklands. In fact, yep. Plowman's Lunch, are we going to see that again? Is it going to come out on DVD? Is it? It's out in DVD. It is out uh, in DVD, okay. I looked uh, for it, I couldn't yeah, find it. It's not easy to find. Yeah. But, um, so there was, it, I mean, that's it, what I say about you, you it, were moving into, so it seemed to me, a more politicised It writing. was a very anxious stage, I think. Easy to forget now. Uh, the Cold War fell into various chapters, and there was a very, very uneasy chapter, its final chapter, really, uh, through the 80s, when both superpowers seemed to have decided that if they fought a nuclear war, they'd do it by proxy, by smaller nuclear weapons based entirely either in, in Europe or, or in Eastern Europe, and so that we would become the battleground for, for their show. And so um, most people who cared about these things were in a profound state of anxiety as the SS-20s were placed and the, the cruise missiles um, were balanced on both sides. It was the time of the Greenham Common uh, demonstrations. And of course, it all fell apart in ways that were spectacularly sudden. No one could have predicted. All that money we subvent to intelligence agencies didn't seem to warn us of the fact that the Berlin Wall, by the end of that decade, was going to be down. And, uh, and we entered another um, strange time and interesting chapter. Well, it didn't, it didn't seem to be um, portrayed very positively when you wrote in Black Dogs that uh, sort of quite terrifying scene of people actually being there at the time when the Berlin Wall is falling, but the aggression uh, on the streets is, uh, it, you know, it isn't going away. Um, I've, I don't know, I might, my memory, because I, I, I'd written a novel set in Berlin uh, called The Innocent. When the wall, uh, the first news of the wall came down, I went straight across, mm -hmm. um, got a ticket and spent the next three days in Berlin with German friends. Uh, and I hope that at least uh, some part of Black Dogs conveys the exhilaration of that time. Mm. It, it really was amazing. I, I spent mo a lot of time around Potsdamer Platz, uh, watching and actually climbing on the wall and climbing over it and going across that no man's land that was once, uh, which had just been freshly mm. removed. All the mines had just been taken out on the 10th of November. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment. Um, I'm surprised, you could, I'm surprised you could move for, for English novelists because P.D. James and Ruth Rendell also went at the same time and, and each has a piece of the wall in their bathroom at home. Do you, do you have uh, a little souvenir? No, I didn't huh? take a souvenir. Uh, I saved that for Chesil Beach. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, it's funny the things you get into trouble for yes, these days, I know. isn't it? Uh, no, I, I'm sure that uh, most of those people milling around were novelists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> East German, well, you, you know, Christoph surging from the east. Well, you, you touched there on, on The Innocent, um, which is, uh, um, I, I don't know how I'm going to segue here, but um, I mean, the, the, the main character in The Innocent is very innocent. He's a 25-year-old virgin yes. when he arrives in post-war Berlin to help with the bugging of this tunnel. That's right. Um, and he reminded me quite a lot of the main character in On Chesil Beach. He is a cousin of that. Uh, <laughs> there, there's something I find rather rich, as it were, uh, novelistically, about innocence. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in innocence can be a very dark thing. I mean, we remember how frequently uh, post-foreign um, policy calamities, America claims to have lost its innocence. I mean, it must have claimed to have lost its innocence maybe a hundred times in the 20th century. <laughs> uh, interesting, too, that uh, 
a speechwriter put in George Bush's mouth just uh, the day before yesterday a line from uh, The Quiet American mm. about the damage that can be done uh, by innocence. And yet innocence too has all the, uh, all, you know, it has redeeming qualities too. But there's a great deal of the rub of comedy and tragedy in a figure who either knows nothing and doesn't know that he knows nothing or uh, someone who's sort of innocently engaged with the world, desperate to discover it. Well, he has, he has quite an engagement in the world in The Innocent, eventually, yeah. when he is uh, forced to chop up his lover's ex-husband's body yes. and um, yeah. carry it around Berlin in suitcases. Yeah, this is my notion of engagement. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Jean-Paul Sartre's, but it's, it's mine. Um, sure, uh, I, th I think it was the first image uh, I had of that novel um, was uh, of a man having committed uh, a crime by mistake uh, and then committing crimes of commission by trying to cover his mistake. Uh, and again, to come back to the political world, so many of the great errors in the political world are, are about not the mistake, but the covering up of the mistake. And, uh, so Leonard, yes, um, gets locked into a terrible set of circumstances whereby he has to uh, park the dismembered corpse of his um, lover's ex-husband actually in uh, the tunnel that he's been uh, helping to construct uh, under the Soviet sector. Mm. So is the it, secret is lodged within a secret, which George Blake, of course, famously well, I'm, I was going I was going to say, I mean, that was, to me, that was a very interesting um, book, f I mean, in the context of the, the kinds of books I write, and also because you don't do it so much, is bringing a real character, I mean, a real <laughs> historical personage, George Blake, the spy, is a, is a fairly central character in that book. Yes. Did you decide that you needed a real person as opposed to a fictional representation? Well, I needed this deus ex machina figure to betray the tunnel at the end. So, I mean, that had to... Uh, and, of course, as the tunnel is betrayed, um, of course, the, the crime that Leonard has committed is, is concealed. Mm. It will never be discovered because now the Russians are in control of this, uh, this thing. Also, um, George Blake interested me as a figure. You remember he was smuggled out of Wandsworth Prison yeah. by uh, two um, well-meaning um, peace protesters. Uh, they put him in their camper van and uh, drove him to Berlin, as I, as I remember. Uh, uh, and a man who was responsible for, for many deaths, actually, uh, of, of, of brave people in uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary, but also had about him a kind of innocence. He, he, he was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party and, he, and, and even post... Uh, Hungary, post-Czechoslovakia, um, he still held to the belief that the, the people's paradise was, was um, still achievable and, and, and a pleasant prospect. Mm. Uh, so again, uh, there's the innocence of George Blake against the innocence of, of, of young Leonard. Which mm. And in the new book on Chesil Beach, of course, it's all about innocence, the awkwardness yes. of innocence. Um, again, yes, uh, no terrible crime committed. And not even maybe a terrible tragedy, just perhaps a missed opportunity. So a novel of regret, really, rather than... Uh, well, what, I mean, what it comes down to is, uh, as really, with, with, I mean, with, with Atonement, um, with Saturday, how a moment or a moment's reaction uh, or a moment's thoughtless unplanning uh, can change history, Yes. as far as the characters involved are concerned. It's, so, I mean, it's really the moment. Yeah. It's, it seems to me that you're, you're picking apart a moment in time. I think fiction can pick apart moments well, better than most other forms. Uh, you can, as it were, freeze the frame 
as, as you know better than anyone, um, you can analyze the moment in fiction. Uh, the moment of crisis, the drama allows you the luxury of altering the drumbeat of your prose. There's always that enormous attraction. And then also there becomes uh, the test of character, of how, uh, how a moment, how a, how a crisis, a drama, some pressure uh, could reveal character. Mm. Um, and then also, and, and this is secondary, but still very interesting to me, how this lodges in memory, how, how this moment actually might be remembered differently by different people who are attending the event. Um, human memory, I, I've slowly, slowly discovered, is so fabulously unreliable. Um, uh, and, and that unreliability is of enormous value, I think, to, mm. to novelists. Mm. Don't you find that there's, I mean, especially when a crime is committed. Unreliable narrators are very mm. important, and people who, who, who've seen the wrong thing or think they've seen the right thing, of course, you know, the, 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 the witnesses to the crime um, are very important. And but it's interesting that the, the police these days have various psychological apparatus yes. to try and make people remember things. Um, and the, the lineup now considered a highly unreliable. Yeah. I mean, all the cognitive psychology suggests that um, people's ability to remember a face, especially in a moment of crisis, especially if they have other motivations, which they're hardly aware of for picking someone out as opposed to someone else. It chimes with some other maybe terrible event in their yeah. past that a, a face might remind them of another face. Sure. That really it's become, you know, I think, uh, you tell me, uh, well, far more discredited now. Well, yeah, I mean, it has, it has, but luckily things like DNA have come in, which are the new yes. religion. This is what we now believe in, science. Yes. It, it's science that must be true. Yes. Um, a DNA fingerprint cannot lie. Well, wow. so we think. Uh, but we don't really know yet. We're yeah. trusting a lot to this sort of uh, technology. Because it is technology, and we're absolutely in, in awe to technology. One day someone will commit a crime, and someone with the same DNA profile will have gone to prison. Uh, it with, has to yeah. happen because uh, the figures are about 1 to 60 million. Well. Yeah. That's bound to I mean, first cousins can be very close in yes. terms of DNA and yeah, stuff absolutely. like that. Let's not get into and twin. you don't take all the DNA either. You're only taking a, yeah. a slice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, this interest in time uh, is something that goes back to what has, uh, in rereading your books to prepare for this, uh, to me, the central text was Child in Time. Great title, by the way, Deep Purple. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, Sweet Child um, in Time. Has to be. You had to be thinking of that. Anyway, I, was, I was thinking that, of Tippett. Child. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 you weren't. No, great, you were thinking a great of Great oratorio. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, of course you wrote an, orat an oratory as well. Um, By the way, we must talk about uh, opera libretti. We will. Well, libretti, we'll come on to libretti. Because you and I are both are now engaged. Well, sort of. But time, <laughs> I mean, this is your event, not mine. Time, um, it seemed to me, which you actually was in the title of that book and was very important to that book. Mm. And when I reread it, I mean, not only did I think it was fascinating, the idea of, of reverting to childhood and instances of infantilism and daytime television watching and the, yes. the people who take part in daytime quiz shows and chat shows, it's all prefigured in that book. Um, but also with the, the Madeleine McCann case um, being at the forefront of people's minds at the moment, the idea of losing a child and what that does to you afterwards, I thought was very, um, I mean, it added a layer uh, and because of rereading it at the moment at which I was rereading it, that did add a layer. I remember reading the chapter in which the child was abducted um, at a literary festival in Australia. It was in Adelaide. And uh, I'd never, I'd, I'd only just finished, it was a first draft, only just finished that particular bit. And Bob Stone, the American, Robert Stone, the American novelist, um, suddenly got to his feet at the end um, and delivered this passionate speech. I wish I'd 
had a tape recorder for it. It was an extraordinary thing. He said, what is it with us novelists that we go for the worst thing? He said, you've just told us the worst thing that could happen to anybody. And, and, and I think, you know, he put his finger on it. It is a terrible thing, a terrible torture to lose a child. To have a child stolen means there is never any closure to this event. And uh, I suppose I did inflict, uh, partly because I was about to enter into fatherhood myself, mm. uh, my worst terror, yeah. and just explored it in that way. The sense that the child you've missed uh, is still alive, misses you, or is beginning to forget you, that you are fading in its memory, um, all the parallel lives um, that, that, that could haunt you uh, made me feel that the McCann case, and, and of course it's not the only case, um, really did play out on a public stage one of our worst fears. Perhaps the worst thing, worst, I mean, all of us as adults would dread being very ill, terminally ill, but it's not quite the pain of uh, um, the loss of a child mm. and the sense of that child still there, still possibly within your reach. Yeah, the, the, the child is so, still there in time, somewhere. Um, yeah. So it was, it, uh, and I, I had very mixed feelings about the extent to which uh, this had to be played out in public mm. for the McCanns, and I think they really have been quite extraordinary in keeping their dignity in the uh, extraordinary on onslaught from, uh, and it does seem that the Portuguese media have now learned all the vile tricks of the British media. Yeah. By, um, yeah. uh, and, and yet they have actually uh, been staunch, resolute. I, I'm quite amazed. I got a lot of calls, um, not from um, British newspapers, but European newspapers, um, to write about this case because of the child in time. And I refused. I thought that I, I have to separate the fictional from the real. It's a bit like if you're a crime writer, you tend to get phone calls saying, will you go and cover this case for us that's in the courts just now? Yeah. Um, some novelist in Eastern Europe who is, who's killed someone in a, a way that was just like one of his books. Um, that's ongoing yeah. at the moment. Yes. Go and oh. cover that for us. Why? What, am I, what can I say about it? You yeah. always must say no. Absolutely not. Not a journalist anyway. Must yeah. always say no. Why the title on Chesil Beach? I know we're bouncing around quite a lot, but this suddenly came back to me. Why, why on Chesil? Why did it have to be Chesil Beach? Well, this is a novel that could not, in my mind at least, uh, have taken place inland. It had to be, uh, I mean, where, where ignorance or innocence meets experience, it seems to me, there is where the land meets the sea, as it mm. were, where the known social world meets the unknown uh, of the ocean. Uh, I was on Chesil Beach uh, a few years ago. I had no idea that uh, I'd ever set a novel there, but I, I took a sort of mental photograph of it. I love the way, uh, geologically, um, once you're on that spit of, of, of shingle, you're trapped between the sea and this uh, lagoon, the fleet. Uh, it's also very difficult to walk on. It's a hard slog. And in fact, the beach was so full of possible metaphors for a novel that I really had to sort of damp them down. I mean, they, they could get up and, 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 uh, and overwhelm a short novel. The Hardy uh, reference, Thomas Hardy? No? Well, Reading not too much really. Into it. I mean, one, there was one, one, at least one journalist pointed out that, yeah. that on Ch Chesil Beach is where Thomas Hardy says he met Tess. Yes. And, um, and uh, I think the same reviewer said, this is a book full of Hardy-esque missed opportunities. 
There, reading far too much into it, right? The, yeah, well, no, I, I, I like it when people read things. Into it. <laughs> it's, fi it's fine by me. That's Makes what the book seem more intelligent than yes, that. Yes, yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just sit back and, you know. <laughs> uh, I suppose there was a sort of parting uh, reference backwards to Dover Beach uh, from Saturday. Mm -hmm. Uh, but really, um, and of course, there was Larkin's poem, and I resisted quoting it at the front of the book, and um, about you know the Lady Chetley's band and the Beatles' first LP. Uh, so, sex was invented in 1963. This book is set in 1962. Two, yeah, which doesn't rhyme with Beatles' first LP. You know, uh, 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 the Beatles' big de debut? Yeah, oh, a big one. debut. Very good. No, well. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very good. Um, I should, I, I apologise, I should have right at the start when I started talking about this book congratulated you on making the Booker long list yet again. Well, it's nothing I did. Um, no, I can still I mean, congratulate you for it. You may, you may, of course. But had I not been on it, I still would have worked just as jolly hard. Um, uh, How do you feel about literary prizes? Well. I think that... He the, said the, jealously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me they have no meaning in your life, yeah, please. <laughs> You'll realise when you get to this stage. Um, on, on the booker, Julian Barnes is my font of wisdom. He says it's posh bingo. Um, <laughs> so you, you put on your penguin suits, you go to the dinner, and it could be anyone. It could be you. And you know very well that a different committee would choose a different book. Yeah. We know very well, for example, the winner of the Orange Prize this year is not on the long list. And, mm. and we're, we're used to that. We know that literary judgments are not matters of science or mathematics. But still, it has that element of, of the spinning bottle. It has done marvelous things for um, the one writer each year who wins it. Uh, it's tough on those. You know, it, it, it's become quite an ordeal. Uh, you know, there's always a bit of a lurch of the heart. You put a book out, then you th and you get it all over with, say in May. Mm. But then, of course, the, there are the the Booker things to to deal with. Uh, it's it, it has been a fabulous success. Um, I sometimes wonder if it wouldn't be more grown up to announce the winner, and then have the dinner. Um, yeah. Uh, rather than you put us relax. all through uh, mm -hmm. this. Uh, then you, you could know, have a drink at least. Not everyone gets to take the party bag home. You know, that's sure. That. Um, I, I, there was a very, something, I mean, I, I was going to say it was cruel observations. I, I mean, quite a few people, when you won the Booker Prize with Amsterdam, said it's the, the correct writer, but the wrong book. Yeah, it's funny that, because at the time, when Amsterdam was published, it received the best reviews I'd ever had. And then, because it was a short novel, it got such a kicking when it won the Booker Prize that I felt rather sorry for it, like some, uh, some child that I should have taken to an event that I shouldn't have. Uh, so, um, you know, it is, it is a mixed thing. It's conferred a lot of readers on a lot of books, um, but it, it, it's quite a business to, to get through. And, yeah. uh, you know, most years, most writers don't win the Booker Prize. Sure, sure. And Another interest, um, well, yes. most writers don't win it. Most writers get a bit grumpy about not even putting a long list from some of the 
people I've spoken to recently at the Book Festival and beyond. I'll put in a word um, for you. No, 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 I don't mean me, I mean other people. Um, um, I'm struggling here to look because there was someone I was going to bring up about music. They, um, because, of course, the, 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 the main female character in On Chesil Beach is a classical musician, and I'm forgetting whose, whose wife is a classical musician in one of your earlier books. Oh, in The Child in Time. Child in Time. Yep, she's yeah. working on the um, C yep. major. I mean, music is obviously something that's interested you for a long time. Yes. Uh, difficult to write about music. I mean, it, you know, because it lingers on the, that sense of something almost being said. It seems so rich in meaning, but we find it difficult to express. It's gloriously abstract. It speaks to our emotions. Uh, and I like to have, well, in, in Chesil Beach, for example, uh, part of the chasm between the two characters is uh, their love of different kinds of music. Mm. He loves Chuck Berry. Uh, she thinks when he tries to play, trying to get her engaged with his kind of music, she thinks it's all rather silly that such simple tunes should have a drummer beating out the time. She says it's only in common time. So at that point, um, he realizes you know, that um, he's never going to persuade her. And for him, classical music has, as, as, he, as he thinks to himself, a, an air of prim agitation you know, that uh, he can't engage with at all. Mm. Uh, fleetingly, he catches a melody, but then it goes, all gets lost in a tangle of you know, exposition or development. So sometimes, you know, one can use music to I mean, not only celebrate music, but to... Sure. I mean, it delineates characters. the two characters quite well, because you know maybe this relationship is never going to work anyway, because mm. one is from thinking from the heart, you know, music affects the heart, another one, music affects the head. Mm. And sometimes, you know, being moved by a piece of music can get in the way of actually, you know, thinking about it, and thinking yeah. about music too much can get in the way of actually enjoying it. Yes. Although I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't um, want to people to think that I thought that classical music was only about the head. Because, no. Uh, it's no. clearly of great, enormous beauty. Yes, which is but why you've written libretti. Yes. Are you, are you currently writing an opera? Is I've just right? written an opera. Oh, you've just written and I thought I, I might get some hints from you on this. Because uh, I know no. you're, you're writing one. Well, I've, written, I've written a very short libretto, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. It's only 15 minutes um, for, a, for a, a Scottish opera project. But tell us about yours. Mine is with Michael Barclay. I mean, You've who wrote the music for the oratorio that we did in 1981. Uh, we've been talking about doing an opera. Or, I mean, I should say this is more like music theatre than opera. But I, I'm not quite sure of the definitions, really. Uh, it's about a composer, as I believe yours is. Uh, mine is a, a contemporary composer, a man uh, in his mid-60s, uh, beginning to worry about his declining powers, not only aesthetically, but um, sexually. He's a great womanizer, constantly betraying his wife. And um, it allowed me the opportunity of having him, the, the baritone, conduct the pit orchestra and be able to point to the French horns where the soprano is sitting, um, holding a, an instrument, uh, that he that she's played a wrong note. And then they have, she stands up and says, I played it, you know, you, you wrote it rather high. I did the best with what you wrote. Uh, and this humiliation is actually the beginning of a seduction. Uh, so music is quite central to, uh, to the, actual, the opera itself. Uh, and um, by the end of the opera, well, I'm not going to tell you the whole plot of this opera. It's not going to be at all helpful. But it ends with a, a rehearsal for a new work of his. 
during which he's arrested for a crime he never committed. <laughs> Damn, what's your thought of that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> when when, you, when, will, you, you can can we, when and where can we expect to see this? It'll open uh, next June at the Hay Festival. Hay and Wine? Mm. Ah. Yeah. Uh, Michael is still writing it, actually. Uh, did, did, I mean, so I'm not going to get too nitpicking, but this interests me. Did you have to write the lyrics for him, the libretto, yeah. before you could write the music? Yes. Because I desperately uh, wanted the music before I wrote the oh, words. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't think I could do that. No, I... I well, as I wrote the words down, I was actually hearing tunes in my head, which yeah. I knew the composer wasn't going to use. Well... <laughs> because they weren't very good, but they were uh, mine. <laughs> but it, it's funny, isn't it, that you can hear tunes in your head, but if you go to the piano and try and well, no. get any... Not even one note seems... Um, yeah. to be the beginning note of what you thought. Um, I left in, in, in my first draft of this libretto lots of notes to Michael um, okay. asking for, well, for example, at the beginning of the opera, uh, I asked him to score the sound of an orchestra tuning up uh, so that we have, it begins with a lot of sort of chaos of sound. You know, you know the way the trumpets are doing little sort of runs and everyone's doing everything different. And I know that uh, people who don't like modern music will think that, you know... Uh, <laughs> Worst fears. It started. You know. <laughs> but then it'll all go up to the oboe's A, and the whole orchestra will move up to that A, and, uh, and then at that point, um, okay. the, the, the uh, baritone will begin his uh, first thing about, um, about music itself. And... Michael, who you know, knows a thousand times more about music than I do, uh, is actually very kind about this. He does, I mean, he actually came up with the sound of an orchestra tuning up. Uh, when I ask for, I say, uh, could, could this be sung over a pedal note um, on the basses? Um, he emails back and says, perhaps. Which, um, which I think is, you know, Maybe let rich, you down richly generous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, my impertinence. I've managed not to talk about the film of atonement, but I'm sure we probably, well, sure, we probably will get a question from the audience. I am now, because we're at quarter past, going to open it up to questions from the audience. So, if the light, house lights come up, thank you very much. And we will have two roving microphones, I dare say, one either side. And there's a lady there who's got her hand up, so we'll come straight to you. Thank you very much. Hi, I just wanted to ask a question about uh, your novel on Chesil Beach, which you've been speaking about uh, a bit at length here. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I was quite impressed with um, how little dialogue there was in it and how um, furiously it moved forward. Um, the question I have regards the decision you made towards the end uh, about point of view, um, because you've got sort of a wonderful storyteller voice sort of chiming in very uh, deftly about history and, and bits like that mm. and it moves between her point of view internally and his very regularly um, almost like a duet throughout but then at the end you really stick with with him and I just want uh, you to speak about that decision um, right. and, and wondered if your editor questioned you on that or you know anything like that no uh, certainly not um. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's a good question because it was a very conscious decision uh, and, and let me just start with the dialogue. The idea I had was to have as little dialogue as possible until they had their confrontation on the beach at the end of the novel. Uh, then, then it would sort of explode into dialogue. My feeling was that if you remained um, pitched between 
two minds at the very end of the novel. You wouldn't sense the absence of one of the characters. So I decided that I mean, it, would, it, it could either be her or him, but one of them would have to, as it were, disappear down the beach. So her, her fading away and his moment of regret that if only he'd called out to her, she would have turned back. That really would have to be the last time not only he, but we would see her. So the, and maybe this was too grand a notion for me to expect the reader, but I wanted the reader to regret her going in that same way. Uh, and that then I would just concertina the rest of his life, 40 years, uh, rather horrifying way in which, and I certainly know it, I'm almost 60, the way one could summarize your life on the back of an envelope. You know, or, um, even, even in 300 pages, it, it's, it's a concertinering, uh, but very much part of the sense that for the regret to be lived, as it were, one of the characters had to go, and we would not actually know, except at one remove. We know that she continues in her string quartet. We know it becomes very eminent. We know that he can't bear to go into a music store, not that he has an interest in classical music, but he can't even bear to sort of turn over one of her CDs to look at her picture because he wants her frozen in time. So, so that was the decision. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go over this side, we'll take that lady there, and then we'll come up towards the back. Thank you. I, I was quite surprised to hear you say that there was no terrible crime committed in Chisel Beach because it's quite obvious that Florence has been abused by her father and yet you never say it up front and I thought it was a beautiful book and I really loved it but I found myself quite angry that you didn't actually state that and I wondered if that was your intention to make the reader angry um, <laughs> oh, why not <laughs> again it, it's, it's, it's a perceptive question from my point of view uh, I had a lot of trouble with how much volume, as it were, to give this event. In my earlier drafts, it was spelt out much more. Um, in fact, in an earlier draft, I can tell you that at one point, uh, what's referred to is the fact that her father is arrested uh, for another crime. But I also say that Edward never, never there's a paragraph that says that he never uh, read the review of her first concert in the Wigmore Hall. In the same newspaper, he would have read of the arrest five years later of uh, Mr. Ponting um, for abusing a 12-year-old child. And, and I had doubts about whether everything about Florence was then going to be devolved onto one single fact in her past. And I tried it on a number of readers that I trust, uh, uh, principally my wife, uh, and, and, and in this case, two editors and a couple of friends. And they echoed my sense, actually, that it was, it was too deterministic. And that, uh, so therefore, I took it down. But then I took it down too much. Uh, and so it was finally balanced upwards that it's there, but that's not what this novel is principally about. It's something in the background. Some readers miss it entirely. You clearly didn't. Uh, but to make Florence purely the consequence, everything about her purely the consequence of this one event, I think would have subverted uh, my intentions for the rest of the novel and, and for what I think makes us as people. Okay, thanks. Um, towards the back, in fact, second back row is that? 
Um, can I just ask you about the, the film version of Atonement? Thank you. Um, which, I, <laughs> which I've seen and think is magnificent. Um, can I ask two points? One, what do you think of it? I know I think Goran's saying you're one of the producers. And secondly, do you think that the version of the, um, the, the director, Joe Wright, is very different from the version that might have been from your friend Richard Eyre? Um, inevitably, it would be a, a very different film. Uh, generally, my sense of the film is, is, is very, very positive. Um, I worried a bit because this was an expensive movie. I mean, by British standards, at least. I think sort of $40 million. Did you script it, Ian? No. Um, Christopher Hampton uh, wrote a very good script, actually. Uh, it follows the novel uh, in structure very closely, three parts and a, and a, and a coda. Uh, it is superbly cast, I think. Um, I think Saoirse Ronan playing young Bryony. This is a 12-year-old uh, girl from Dublin. Strong Irish accent. The moment the camera turns, she's pitch-perfect home counties. Uh, extraordinary young girl. And I think she'll be, a, if she decides to be an actress, I think she'll have an incredible future. I think James McAvoy brings, uh, who plays the male lead, an uh, amazing degree of, uh, sort of understated intensity to, to the part. Um, and Kira Knightley turns in a, an extraordinary performance, a very brittle, upper-class young woman uh, who's immensely detached from her own feelings and then discovers them in a great flood. So I think one of the best scenes in the movie, from my point of view, is, is, is the lovemaking in the library, done with great tenderness uh, and a great suspense, too. Um, what was the other bit of your question? What, what would Richard Eyre have made of it? <laughs> yeah. uh, this we'll never know. Um, I know that Richard would have turned in a, a superb movie, um, different in style. I suppose that Joe Wright is one of those movie makers who makes things look stunning every shot. Um, you know, where, where the novel describes Cecilia, or rather say where the novel describes a, a rather large, vic ugly Victorian house. In fact, they found the sumptuously beautiful uh, country house in Shropshire. Um, so there might have been a little more uh, of the social realist in Richard. I'm only guessing here. But I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's worked out very well. I mean, there, there are little points of departure that, you know, I would have had it differently, but it wasn't made to please me. And actually, I, th I think in the circumstances, it, 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 Joe Wright has, has done extremely well. How, how is it you've seen it? Yeah. Um, I possibly might be a journalist. Ah, <laughs> right. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, uh, we'll take that gentleman there. His hand went up first. We'll try and get to you afterwards, sir. Um, you seem to be a lot more interested in plots than a lot of other literary writers. I wanted to know, do you start with a plot before you've begun writing, or do you discover the plot as you write? Occasionally, I've known a plot from the beginning, um, and I've loved that. I mean, uh, to have a plot already in your head. But mostly, my plots unfold largely as a consequence of character. Uh, once I'm inside my characters, I, I, I let things happen and uh, hope to um, generate uh, a degree of suspense, threat, or interest, at least, uh, in that way. That's why the, the leap from first draft to second draft is, is so important. I mean, 
by then you do know roughly you know, where you're headed and you can retrospectively then shoehorn your plot back into the shape it needs to be. But I think I'm, my plots are character driven. And there was a gentleman down here. With, yep, thank you very much. Uh, going back to um, Chesil Beach and the Denouement, because I think that's probably the, the work that's most on people's mind uh, today. Edward seems to get a really good kicking at the end of the novel. It almost brings out your Govan Hartman, if you like, that the voice, the authorial voice that doesn't like the self-protective male. And what you've said about, you know, the analysis that Florence would have to have gone through in order for them to have sustained a, a healthy relationship. Um, does this speak something about your own um, voice that you, you're a quite self-protective person yourself, and you 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 view your work is, is informed by that, that it's from this side mm. of Mons Painted Veil vale rather than the other side? Well, Edward is not a reflective character, uh, and yet he ends with a sense of disappointment. I, I would disagree. I don't think he gets much of a kicking, um, certainly not in, in government terms. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to think, have you, have you ever been described in those terms before as a governed hard man? It's a fantastic revelation to well, me that you I, might be a governed hard man. My heart is swelling with pride. <laughs> finally made it in, in, in the land of my father. Um, my sympathies were very much with both, and I, I hope that that comes through. And uh, it's really about, uh, from Edward's point of view, a, a realization in his mid-60s uh, that he's never met anyone as serious. Uh, so he lives, has all that fun in the 60s and early 70s never achieves much, doesn't write the history books that he promised himself and promised her, uh, drifts through life, uh, organizes a couple of rock concerts, uh, runs a music store or two, uh, which are beginning to fail because of the internet, uh, lives in the house he grew up in, finally, uh, and has not done much, but has not suffered much either. And so the, the poignancy for him is that there could have been a, a better life. Uh, but you know, these things are not entirely his fault either. It's the life with all the pain Sorry? I don't think his life is that painful. I think it's slightly dull um, in the way that, you know, many of our lives are. But it's, uh, not, it's not Pink Floyd's quiet desperation is no. the English way. He has no existential agony. He's not um, you know, he, he, he doesn't have children, but he's a godfather to various, and he's, he's lived okay, but it's, there's a sense that there was something greater he could have done with his life. That, that's gonna, all I think. Ian, I'm going to try and squeeze in one final question. There was a ch chap here. Um, keep your hand up, please, sir, and the, the mic will come down. If you do have questions for Ian, he will be signing afterwards in the tent right next door, and he will hopefully take individual questions if you've been a nice, shy Edinburgh audience who haven't bothered to ask a question in public, sir. Thank you. We're still on the beach. A couple of references. Uh, the Rough Bounds and Oidart and Kalila Malt Whiskey. Right. Are they references with deeper meaning or simply self-preferences? Well, um, Neudart's become a very special place for me. Um, my wife, Annalena, has, uh, over these last uh, 10 or 12 years, really uh, opened up Scotland for me. And uh, we go regularly to Neudart uh, to uh, read, write, and hike, and um, 
I, I sometimes climb up to some high lochs and fish out some of the smallest brown trout that <laughs> you could ever imagine after a great deal of effort. With a, with uh, a hip flask full of kaolin? Oh, yes, uh, patchouli. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, as, as for the whiskey, that, that one I'd only just tasted for the first time, and I must have been around about the time of writing that passage, mm. so it just fell in. Um, you might be on a lifetime supply from them, I would have thought. Ah, uh, well, it's a fine whiskey, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> <you go. laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, you have been fantastic. Can I close by thanking you, thanking Ian McEwen, and thanking our signer today, Rachel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get you out of here.